Shalom, this is Rabbi Tama Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue. I invite you to send me your comments, any requests for specific teachings, uh, or any other comments you'd like to make uh, to our website at rabdavis.org under the Ask the Rabbi link, and I will be happy to uh, entertain those questions or comments or requests. Today I'm bringing commentary on Parashah number 12. This is Vayachi, He Lived out of Genesis 47:28 through 50:26. This week I want to start with a closer examination of chapter 48, 5 through 7. In this part of the narrative, Jacob, or Yaakov, is speaking to Joseph, or Yosef, about his two sons that were born in Egypt. He told Joseph that these two boys, quote, shall be mine, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, no less than Reuben and Simeon. But progeny born to you after them shall be yours. They shall be recorded instead of their brothers in their inheritance. I do this because when I was returning from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow while I was journeying in the land of Canaan, when still some distance short of Ephrath, and I buried her there on the road to Ephrath, now Bethlehem. Unquote. This above narrative speaks for an explanation. Why should Jacob claim Ephraim and Manasseh as his own while relegating any further offspring of Joseph's to be his? Why is the inheritance to be given to Joseph's subsequent offspring? Jacob tells Joseph it's because Rachel died on the side of the road on the way to Ephrath. Well, what does this have to do with anything? Let's explore these verses for the answer. One explanation is as follows. Jacob adopted the first two boys out of respect and love for Rachel, who was their grandmother. This act promoted these boys to the status of tribal founders, and in essence makes Jacob's favored wife, although deceased, their mother in place of the Egyptian priest's daughter. The end of verse 5 seems to indicate that Ephraim and Manasseh will become the senior tribes, replacing Reuben and Simeon, both of whom earned their father's censure. In 1 Chronicles 5.1, verse 6 stipulates that additional progeny that Joseph has or will have shall be classified under Ephraim and Manasseh and not enjoy the status of Jacob's other sons. Now some scriptures that list the twelve tribes include Joseph and Levi, but others omit Levi and divide Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh in considerable detail. Reading just a bit further into verse 8, one may think that Israel, Jacob, is confused as he asks Joseph who the two boys are when he just finished discussing them and clearly blessing each in verses 12 through 20 and describing their future through prophecy. The question of Israel's or Jacob's seeming confusion is easily explained if we look at verse 8 as a continuation of verse 2 and 3 through 7 understood to be an interpretation. If any doubt remains as to Israel or Jacob's mental state, the issue is clarified in verses 17 through 20. Now both tribes became important, but it was from Ephraim that Joshua, who was the successor of Moshe, Samuel the prophet, and Jeroboam the first, who was the founder of the northern kingdom of Israel, came. Ultimately, Ephraim became synonymous with the northern kingdom, and this is found in Hosea 5.3 and Isaiah 7, 1 through 17. So, let's move to a lesson that can be learned from this peculiar writing of this parasha in the Torah scroll. This parasha is unique in that there is no space between it and the preceding parasha. Typically, there's a space of at least nine letters in length 
or a new line separating the two Upanishads. A possible meaning of this anomaly is explained by Rashi, who is a very famous Jewish commentator. Rashi describes this parashah as closed, meant to teach something about the mood of Jacob's children when he died. That is, their hearts weren't open to the possibility of impending bondage and suffering of the children of Israel. Indeed, after Jacob's death, the spiritual exile of the people began according to rabbinic interpretation. I submit that the spiritual exile of the children of Israel, that is, all true believers, and men in general, began with the deception of Hava, or Eve, and the sin of Adam described in Genesis chapter 3. Another reason for the structure of this parashah may be that Jacob wanted to tell his children the time of the, quote, end, capital E, unquote, known as the Messianic Age, when Israel's exiles would finally end but his prophetic vision was closed, according to Rashi. However, the blessings Joseph gave his children, blessings that were indeed prophetic and extend to the time of Messiah Yeshua's return. Even the blessings of Ephraim and Manasseh in Genesis 48 foretell of their inclusion in the 144,000 called out to be sealed during the tribulation described as Manasseh and from the tribe of Yosef. This is in Revelation chapter 7. Another perspective on the unique structure of this parasha and the Torah scroll comes from the sages who teach that the spaces in the Torah indicate that God paused in order to allow Moshe and future students to reflect on the preceding verses. Therefore, the closure of this parasha structure implies that after Jacob's death, his progeny were not able to perceive or comprehend the significance of this narrative. All right, this is another rabbinic commentary or interpretation of scripture. Jacob beseeched Joseph to take his body out of Egypt to be buried with his fathers. As messianic believers, we understand this request as Egypt represents a sinful lifestyle paradigm, if you will, an anti-Torah paradigm of living. Our Orthodox brethren add their own explanations for this request. A. He knew that the soil would one day be plagued with lice which would have swarmed his body had he been buried there. B, those who are buried outside of the land of Israel will not come to life at the resurrection until they roll through the earth to Eretz Israel. C, he did not want the Egyptians to make his tomb a shrine of idol worship. This is according to Rashi. Now I submit this may have been a danger with some true believers, Israel. Jacob may have wanted to emphasize that Eretz Israel was, is, their only true heritage and homeland, no matter how comfortable they and we may become in a foreign land. Indeed, history testifies to the assimilation of Israel into other cultures and idolatrous practices with horrific consequences. We're doing this again today. A recurring question in this parasha is why Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife, buried on the side of the road instead of with the other matriarchs and patriarchs, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah and Leah were buried in the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, which Abraham had originally purchased from Ephron the Hittite for the burial of Sarah, that's in Genesis 23, because of the cave's proximity to the place of their deaths. Now, the body of Jacob was carried up to Hebron from Egypt, where Jacob had died after going there to see Joseph, this is Genesis 50, which was possible because the Bible specifically says that Jacob was embalmed according to Egyptian burial practices after his birth, 
after his death, I'm sorry, which preserved his body and allowed it to be moved, as also happened with the body of Joseph at the time of Israel's exodus from Egypt hundreds of years later. Now, Rachel died following childbirth near Bethlehem, that's Ephrath, although this would have been only, by our standards, about 18 miles from Hebron, it would not have been possible at that time to carry her unembalmed body that distance for burial, especially since all of Jacob's flocks and herds would have had to make the journey too. Therefore, she was buried at the location where she died, within the short time frame normally associated with Jewish burials. Orthodox Judaism holds a different reason, explained in the Kalmash, that's a Jewish commentary on the Torah. And it says, quote, Even though she died but a short distance from Bethlehem, God commanded Jacob to bury her by the roadside so that she could help the Jewish people when Nebuzaradan, the chief general of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, would lead Israel into captivity after the destruction of the first temple. When the Jews were passing along the road to Bethlehem, tormented, hungry, and exhausted, Rachel's soul came to her grave and wept, beseeching God's mercy upon them. God heard her plea. As the prophet relates, a voice is heard on high, the sound of lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. God replied to her, Withhold your voice from, and your children will return to their brother. This is according to Rashi. So, there's nothing in the Torah that states these things. This is rabbinic opinion and interpretation. Let's look at Jeremiah and see if this opinion is validated. Jeremiah 31.14 Again, there is no scripture stating that God ordered her to be buried at the roadside. Adonai is speaking through Jeremiah about Israel, not Rachel. There is a reference to Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no longer alive. Then Adonai says, Stop your weeping and dry your eyes, for your work will be rewarded, says Adonai. They will return from the enemy's land, so there is hope for your future, says Adonai. Your children will return to their own territory. And the last word in this passage is territory, not brother. This really makes a difference in context of the passage. Just as the Torah speaks of the all-inclusive progeny of Ephraim by using his name, I believe the name Rachel is used to represent her sons and their progeny, Joseph and Benjamin. So, we have included in Jeremiah's prophecy biological Jews and their fellow travelers, whether formal conversion took place or not. Ephraim is spoken of in verses 31, Israel in verses 21 through 4, Israel and Judah collectively in verses 25 through 36. Exegetically, we may conclude that the use of Rachel's name in the context of Jeremiah's prophecy alludes to Benjamin, which is included in Judah, and Joseph, of whose progeny includes Manasseh, Ephraim, that necessarily includes Gentiles who become fellow travelers and converts. It may take you a while to assimilate all of that information, but you can listen to this more than once. Haftarah is out of 1 Kings chapter 2, and this Haftarah echoes Joseph's admonition to his sons on his deathbed to, quote, go in his ways and keep his regulations, commands, rulings, and instructions in accordance with what is written in the Torah of Moshe, so that you will succeed in all you do and wherever you go. If you do, if you do, Adonai will fulfill what he promised me when he said, if your children pay attention to how they live, conducting themselves before me honestly with all their heart and being, 
You will never lack a man on the throne of Israel, unquote. Today we can easily see what has happened to date because we as a society and nation and world have not taken this exhortation seriously. And remember, many people will say, well, what about those who are uh, aboriginal, uh, those who are in the far uh, reaches of the earth who have never seen God's Torah? Well, in God's Torah, for those who do have access to it, it says in the book of Romans, in the first three chapters, that no man has an excuse not to know who God is, because he has made himself manifest to them. Now, we don't know exactly how that is, but we do know that there are sets of rules and laws to be followed in every society. Now, in American society, those laws and rules have been essentially abrogated, and we see the consequences of falling away from God's Torah. We must return to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob while it is still day. Brit Kadashah is out of 1st Kepha, that's 1st Peter. And this narrative reminds us that God is faithful and that we must necessarily endure various griefs and trials as would occur throughout the history of God's people. Quote, through trusting, you're being protected by God's power for a deliverance to be revealed at the last time. We are reminded that even gold is tested for genuineness by fire. We are told that the purpose of our trials is to trust our genuineness, which is more valuable than perishable gold, and that we will be judged worthy of praise, glory, and honor at Yeshua's coming. This narrative is full of present tense verbiage, ongoing, not past tense. We are not once saved, always saved. And the Torah proves that out. The narrative is full of these present tense verbiages. Without seeing him now, but trusting him, you continue to be full of joy that is glorious beyond words. And you are receiving what your trust is aiming at, namely your deliverance, unquote. We simply and plainly have not arrived yet. Salvation is not a giving. A simple profession of faith and belief is not going to cut it, so says God's Torah. Even the demons believe that he exists, and they tremble. How arrogant our American society has become. How paganized. How sad. We must take time to evaluate our theology, our beliefs about what a saving relationship with God really means. First, in American society, we need to recognize once again that there is a God. He is the creator of all the universe, and he is in charge. Unfortunately, Hasatan, Satan, is the prince of the power of the air, and he is roaming this earth now, devouring whom he may. This is also, however, under God's purview. The destination of our souls depends on what we do with God's Torah. And I pray that while it is still day, while you can read, while you can listen, while you are alive, take time to learn what God wants us to do in our relationship to him and to man, that you may be found a good and faithful servant when all is said and done. Shalom.